You are listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number three, recorded in May 2011. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And I'm Sandra Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Today, we're going to look at a review of the basics of what is human trafficking so that we can identify it in our local communities and specifically look at what it looks like when it involves youth who are being sexually exploited. And this is a really difficult issue, unfortunately, Sandy, as many of the topics are that we are talking about in this podcast, because, boy, when we talk about children, things, um, it's such a complicated issue and it's such a heartbreaking issue. And yet it is so much a huge part of this issue that it's something that we really do need to talk about. And you can't really understand human trafficking if you don't understand the um, the 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 way that kids play into this. Well, in in our Department of Justice statistics, our State Department Global Trafficking and Person Statistics, they all show that more than 50% of victims globally are children. So it's to be expected that we're going to encounter children who are victims of trafficking in our own country because we are um, working on this here and finding victims. But I think the most shocking part is to find out that those kids that are being exploited sexually are kids who were born here. They could be from your neighborhood. They could be from my neighborhood. And it's so important for us to be able to identify at-risk kids so we can do prevention and identify kids who are right now in some kind of exploitative circumstance so that we can intervene and get them out. And before we go much further, we should thank those of uh, those of you who are out there who have listened to the first couple of episodes of the Ending Human Trafficking podcast and for the wonderful feedback you've all given us uh, thus far. We're glad to have been able to get this podcast started and off the ground. Uh, and we'd love to hear from you as well. If we haven't heard from you already and you'd love to um, give us some feedback or if you have a comment or suggestion about the show or if you have a question for a future podcast that you'd like um, either me or Sandy to address, we'd be happy to. And there's a couple of ways to reach us. One way is to contact us by email, and that's at the Global Center for Women and Justice email address at Vanguard University. That's um, gcwj at vanguard.edu. And uh, the other way to contact us is through our phone number, which is 714 714- Five five six three six one zero extension two two four two. That's the number for the Global Center for Women and Justice. I was making fun of how you were saying W, by the way, there um, earlier. Where's uh, that W accent from? I don't know. I don't know. I've lived all over. Yeah. So maybe I picked it up in Greece. Yeah, you know. could be. Could be. Mm-hmm. So if you'd like to reach us with a comment or question, that's how to do it. And also you can reach, such, uh, reach us on Facebook as well and just search for the Global Center for Women and Justice and you will find us. And uh, before jumping in and getting started and talking specifically about um, children and trafficking, Sandy, would you take a moment just to 
Uh, for those who may not have listened to the first couple episodes, just a, br- a brief reminder, what is human trafficking and, and, and how that plays out uh, today? The elements of human trafficking can be categorized into three different columns, an action, a means, and a purpose. So someone recruits, harbors, transports, provides, or obtains another human being through the use of force, fraud, or coercion for the purpose of commercial sex acts or labor and services. Now, that force, fraud, and coercion is um, sometimes difficult to identify. We may not see someone actually being beaten or held in um, a locked room, but we will see the evidence of coercion in the fear that keeps someone enslaved. Um, Someone else has the power over their documents, over their family, there are threats against them with harm or, or death threats, and they feel they have no recourse. No one will help them. Um, they may be here in the country without documents, and they may be afraid to ask for help. Consequently, the use of force, fraud, or coercion are those elements that really define when something is beyond just normal um, normal. There is no normal when people are exploiting other people, but um, it moves into the area of slavery, and that can look mm-hmm. like debt bondage. It can it can look like a servile marriage. It doesn't have to always be someone locked in a in a room, but it can be someone that looks like they have free movement and they don't. And I remember our conversation from the last couple of episodes that certainly there are some things that we traditionally think of when we think of exploitation and slavery that enter our minds. But as you were just mentioning, there are also a lot of things that we may not think of um, as quote unquote traditional slavery or trafficking that on their their face may not look like that, but in fact really are someone who's being exploited. And then there's so many, unfortunately, so many ways that that emerges that it's, a, it's there's almost too many to track these days. And it can, it can show itself in all kinds of industries. In farm labor, there's a big case right now here in the United States of victims from Thailand hmm. that were human trafficking victims. You can see it in the service industry in hotels and restaurants. You can see it in um, domestic services in homes where the labor we find out is actually slave labor. Um, but you also see it in commercial sexual exploitation. You see it on the streets and on the internet where people are selling commercial sex acts with women, men, and children. And some of those children are not brought from overseas, but they are kids from our own neighborhoods. So how do we identify? It's very easy to say, oh, that child doesn't speak English and I'm concerned. But when that child looks like they fit in the neighborhood, how do you identify them? I think that's one of the things that is both to me, uh, living here in Southern California, both surprising and also very sad and scary all at the same time, Sandy, is that um, and and I know that this is my mind, just you know, my script of how I see the world. But I, I like to believe that those that these things are things that happen to people a long way away. Not that that makes it better by any mm-hmm. means, but that, I, that these people aren't in our neighborhoods, aren't here in Southern California. And of course, the reality is is that it is a it is an issue here, just like it is anywhere. And, and, and it very well can be 
our children and the people we know and even the people we who live in our neighborhoods and 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 i think there's always um i know for me there's um a balance between certainly we don't want to look at the world as uh, you know everyone's out to you know to to harm us because that's certainly not true but at the same time we also want to have a um and i think almost a an awareness that this does happen and and to really educate ourselves which is what the center is trying to do so much which is study these issues to be an informed citizen and to not only be aware ourselves but to be able to help others and be able to be an advocate to help to really end this issue and that's really important so understanding what the framework looks like that action um, and the means and the purpose one of the things when it involves children that the law provides for us is we don't have to prove force fraud or coercion if they're under the age of 18 the law is going to protect them Mm, so we're going to have resources and we just need to know what to say and what to do to be an advocate sure so knowing that this is if you see something that looks suspicious you call the 888-3737-888 national human trafficking resource center and then they follow up and there's an investigation those investigations sometimes take a long time but with this law we have the the resources to follow up on that um just a few weeks ago there was a bust in san diego that resulted in over 85 arrests for child sex trafficking. Wow. That was an 18-month investigation. Hmm. So it takes a long time to find the perpetrators and to gather the kind of evidence that we need to be able to prosecute based on this model of um, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act. Wow. I, I think the other thing, too, is we need to understand who those victims are and why are they victims. And so... What I'd kind of like to um, talk about is where those victims come from. It seems that um, when when we talk about child victims of trafficking, we do we do we watch documentaries and we see things like the slave next door, and I'm sure everybody out there has watched at least one documentary, and it still is a little bit like um, the media driven Hollywood version. Hmm. What is it look? What does it look like in my own neighborhood? In my own neighborhood, it looks like a child who has um, limited resources, perhaps has experienced some kind of abuse at home already, and is a runaway. Um, is a child with um, abuse history already, and so is looking for a way out of their circumstance, and they may. Um, they may be very, very vulnerable to someone who says, oh, I have a way for you to escape this. And that lures them then to their their world, whatever that may be. And so the, that the, the fraud part of it that we uh, usually identify a trafficking victim with um, is still a part of the elements of trafficking because they promise the kids um, all kinds of wonderful things, a great new life. Um, lots of times there's uh, the lover boy scenario where the the trafficker who is l- literally a pimp um, tells the girl how beautiful she is and wonderful and I'm going to marry you when you're 18. And so she's living in this fantasy that he really cares. He really cares. Somebody really cares for me when really it's all about the money. And just like we talked about before, 
the model for human trafficking is a business model. It's big business. Somebody is going to make a profit. And because of that basis, um, I want to introduce a new term for what we're talking about here. Sure, please do. We're going to call these kids commercially sexually exploited children. Now, that's a really big term for what we have in the past called child prostitutes or teen prostitutes. Mm. But something happens in our brains when we talk about child prostitutes. Something happens when we talk about teen prostitutes. We um, assign a predetermined set of characteristics to that child. The term prostitute implies I decided to sell myself. And somehow with that um, that connotation, how, how we value that child and how damaged that child already is comes with the terminology. When I use the term commercial sexual exploitation of children, I'm defining the entire um, issue. It's commercial because it's business and someone's making a profit. That's what commerce is about. It's sexual exploitation that describes the experience of this child, this teenager. And then it's for the purpose of, um, of commercial sex acts that are being sold. So it's for somebody else's profit. So commercial sexual exploitation of children. That's the term we're going to use for the rest of this podcast. We're not going to call them child prostitutes or teen prostitutes. It's uh, really interesting to, to hear you talk about that because I know that you, um, we had talked earlier before we started recording about, um, you know, just some of the language that people use and the, the, the general, you know, there's general agreement that when you talk about very young kids, you know, I think everyone agrees that nobody makes that choice to be, you know, in a situation like this. But you mentioned that um, something that happens is as the victims age and as they're 15, 16, 17 years old, that um, some people really have a hard time, you know, with that concept of, you know, of that person being a victim. And so I'm wondering if you could speak to that of, you know, where is that dividing line? How, how do you see that? And, and why is that important for us to understand that when we're talking about this issue? Wow, that's a really tough question. But the um, the dialogue goes on in some instances by those who are the perpetrators in that they are the pimps or they are the johns, to use vernacular, mm -hmm. that are purchasing commercial sex acts from children. And so there's a sense that, well, they're old enough to make this choice themselves. Mm. And so they want to support that idea with... Um, and, and remove the responsibility from themselves, and particularly from the aspect of the purchaser. Um, mo the most, in most cases, this is a man, and he's purchasing sex from a child that he then says, no, she looks like a woman, how was I supposed to know? Mm. And so wants to remove that responsibility from himself. Um, but the the reality is that the child cannot legally, according to our federal statutes, make that decision. And the responsibility um, is not on that child to defend themselves or to speak up for themselves. And even if that child says, I'm doing this because I want to, I'm doing this because I love my boyfriend, who is really her pimp, 
um, it doesn't make any difference. She does not have the legal capacity to consent. Now, this gets really gray from state to state because we have um, other laws in our states where we can actually arrest a child for juvenile prostitution. Oh, um, interesting. In some states, it's 16. In other states, it's as low as 14. So how do we provide victim services for a child that we've just placed in um, juvenile detention as a perpetrator? So it gets very, very messy. Ultimately, though, what we do know is all of these kids that are at risk and that end up in some kind of circumstance like that um, require special services for restoration, for rehabilitation. Um, Their experience may include alcohol and drugs. Their experience damages their health, so they may have sexually transmitted diseases Um, They may have become involved in um, substance abuse. And so their health issues are huge and we have to find services for them. Under the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, we're going to be able to provide those kinds of services for them. Mm. uh, When you were talking about the difference between states and just uh, kids being able to be be arrested even for prostitution at age it's 14 did in you some say? places in some places boy that really complicates things doesn't it uh, when you're talking about how do you and and like you mentioned um many of the abusers will use you know the things that they know i would i would think would be important to young women of wanting to be cared for and, and you know um promises made about marriage and i'm going to love you and and those types of things and how complicated and messy that gets because they they are victims and yet and yet the law doesn't always look at it that way and imagine being the law enforcement officer making the raid oh yeah and you're here to rescue this girl and let's say she's 14 years old and she doesn't think she needs to be rescued she um, is going to defend her quote-unquote boyfriend mm-hmm. and may even throw things at you. You're the law enforcement officer. You rode in on a white horse to rescue the damsel in distress, and she doesn't want you mm-hmm. to help her. Yeah. Well, I, you know, my background is pediatric nursing, and uh, I remember giving little kids shots that they didn't want. Um, and it didn't make any difference that they were crying. I still gave them the shot because mm-hmm. that's what was going to make them better. And so for these kids, we have to provide for them what they can't provide for themselves. What types of things should we be watching for as members of the community, as people who care about ending this issue, particularly when it comes to um, kids being involved in this, Andy? Well, I think we want to look at kids who are at risk for being recruited because they're homeless. The California um, Homeless Youth Report came out in February, and I was shocked to find there are 200,000 12 to 17-year-olds in California homeless. It's incredible, A homeless isn't it? child is at risk for being recruited by someone who will offer them um, a place to stay. Uh, they're at risk for being recruited because they don't have any visible means of support. And it gets right back to the economic issue we talked about this being big business in episode two, and it comes right back to that. It's, exactly. It, you know, the economics, unfortunately, drive, um, you know, this because there's such an economic need from people who don't have the resources that to take care of themselves or care for their families. 
The the other reason kids are homeless um, often is because of pre-existing abuse. They've been in an abusive situation. Maybe there's a, a history of domestic violence in the home. The child may have experienced sexual abuse. And in fact, some of the literature now shows us anywhere from 65 to 85% of child victims of commercial sexual exploitation have a history of child sexual abuse in their own community or home environment. Hmm. And so they may have run away to escape that. And now then they're in another situation where they're being sexually exploited. Incredible. Incredible, the numbers and the statistics that that tie into that. I think um, one of the things that we want to be sure that people understand is that money doesn't even have to exchange hands for this to be identified as exploitation. Hmm. Just the promise to a child of money or goods or services um, can define that exploitation as a commercial um, sex act. And even though that child didn't get anything, that was the promise. And when we're talking about the commercial aspect of the sexual exploitation, um, the money is often being exchanged by adults in a different uh, part of the exchange process. Uh, the kids don't get the money, the kids, which really isn't part of the element of that exploitation, but mm-hmm. it seems to be one of the arguments. Well, she got some money or she didn't get any money. It doesn't really make any difference. The commercial sexual exploitation of a child is human trafficking. It is sex slavery, and it is a severe form of human trafficking. And it's a, um, a, a human rights issue. And nobody wants their children to grow up being exploited. Yeah, for sure. And it, I hate to ask this question because I, I know you're going to have one, um, but I'm it just for for those who may not be able to get their minds around what that looks like when money isn't specifically involved. Do you, I know you know of a number of examples and situations you've run into over your years of, of being an advocate against this issue. Um, is there a way that that tends to emerge or a story that you recall where, where that happened just so we could get a sense of how that would play out? I'll, I'll tell you a typical story. We'll just give her the name, Anna. Okay. Um, Anna born here in California, um, not from an immigrant family, because I think there's a, a stereotype that, well, this is with people who are foreigners that come here. Mm-hmm. But this is an average um, middle-class American home. The family uh, is split. Now then it's her and her uh, this girl, Anna, we'll call her, and her mom. And they're doing fine. And then her mom's boyfriend moves in with them. He molests Anna. So Anna is taken out of the home. That's the appropriate action for our child protective services. Mm -hmm. And now she's in a group home and she doesn't really like the group home. So she decides to run away and she runs away um, during dinner time, but she's 14 and she doesn't have a plan for where she's going to go. She ends up on a park bench. It's one o'clock in the morning and there is a pimp who, whenever he needs new product, because it's business, he stops at the and picks up a dollar menu hamburger and goes to that park Mm. and looks for runaways. And he's really happy when he sees Anna because he knows he has another opportunity to recruit. And so he makes friends with her. 
He looks shocked that she's out there and expresses concern for her safety, offers her this hamburger that he just bought and says, he's not really hungry. You can have this. And she takes it and eats it. And now when um, he's about to leave, he says, it's just not safe to leave you out here. Why don't you come home with me tonight? Hmm. And by the end of the week, they're and that's in a how it starts. wonderful relationship as far as she's concerned. He really cares about me. And that's the beginning of the commercial sexual exploitation of one more 14-year-old. Mm. And I, I know that one of the challenges with this is getting our minds around the statistics and numbers. And I know that you feel really strongly, Sandy, about using numbers and statistics that are verified and that are grounded in the research and that are grounded with things that we know. Do we have any idea how often this happens? Because I know there, there's so many things that can't be tracked just because we don't know who's out there, who is a victim. But do you, do you, is there recent research that's well-grounded that we could tell how, how, how that happens, how often it happens, how many people that happens to? Well, I think we're gathering that kind of statistical evidence now. A lot of the statistics that you've heard out there in the past we've discovered really were extrapolations from somebody's gut instinct, and uh, we go back and we look at at where this statistic came from. So we moved away as a as a government and as experts from using uh, those kinds of statistics. Mm. We're gathering more and more and more statistics, and I think what we're really looking at now is we can identify at-risk populations. So those numbers are easy. For instance, I just mentioned the homeless youth report from February, 200,000 homeless youth, 12 to 17 in the state of California. Now that's a statistic that's verifiable. It's something where we can begin to create prevention plans around this. as far as how many kids are being sold every day in what city for for what purposes, that's a that's a very um, nebulous figure, mm. and I wouldn't give any statistics at this point. I would give specific incidences. We have a conviction here in Southern California, um, um, and the perpetrator went to prison for seventeen and a half years ago. Uh, just a few months ago, he lured two or three teenagers, teenage girls, most of them from some kind of shelter program in other states to come here to Orange County, where he then sold them on the internet. So we have lots of evidence in those kinds of cases where we have the convictions. As we build a a better um, collection of those, we'll be able to give better statistics. At this point, though, what we really want to look at is who are the who are the kids at risk and how do we do better prevention? Mm. And I believe that prevention is going to happen when the community recognizes the risk factors and is ready to intervene um, either with alternative resources or at least by calling the National Human Trafficking Resource Center. And that uh, number again for people who don't remember? 888-3737-888. It's... Um it, it's such a complicated uh, issue, Sandy, and I, I, we have just scratched the surface on talking about what, um, how kids are involved with human trafficking. And so I know the next episode we're planning to delve into this a little bit, a little bit deeper and really understand some of the uh, physiology around it, correct? Yeah, I'd like to kind of talk about 
um, why are kids so vulnerable? Well, and that will uh, wrap up our conversation for today. Before we finish, Sandy, I know that um, those who are interested in learning more about this issue and many of the other issues that the Global Center is uh, is really advocating against um, can attend the conference that's coming up that the center is uh, doing in uh, 2012. Our 2012 spring conference will be Women, Education, and Justice, and that's March 2nd and 3rd. We'd love to have you participate. And just a reminder, if you have feedback for us or a comment or question, send us an email at gcwj at vanguard.edu, or you can find us on Facebook. Just search for the Global Center for Women and Justice. And we will see you again in two weeks. Thanks, Andy. Bye.